Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21. I'm going to begin by saying that it is not God's desire that any of us stay in a place of unforgiveness or have to live with bitterness or suffering or pain. That is not God's plan. It's not what He wants for us. It's not His desire for our lives. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Because this is what God does. He is about life. He doesn't want death for us. He doesn't want despair. He doesn't want darkness. He doesn't want pain. He wants life. And Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's such a contrast there. And so if you're feeling in your life that something has been stolen from you, or something is dying in you, or something has been destroyed that was precious to you, then understand that is the work of the enemy. That's the work of the thief, and that's not the work of God. And that is not his desire for you. His desire is life. Now it's interesting as we study through the Old Testament and we we study through these things that God often prescribes death for the violation of His laws. Seems almost contradictory. In fact, that's why people, as we've seen, look at God of the Old Testament as the God of death and destruction and warfare and God of the New Testament as kind of soft and fluffy in life. But He's the same God. And nothing has changed with God. A lot changes with us. Nothing has changed with God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in fact, it's because of God's absolute love of life, it's because honestly Jesus is the life, that He even prescribed the death penalty in the first place. Now that might sound a little contradictory and strange. But God prescribed the death penalty... Because he is so concerned for the protection of human life, he laid down the most severe punishment possible for anyone who would come against human life to try and detour us from taking life. You're going to see that more clearly as we go tonight. There are several moments in here where uh, God's dealing with murder, God's dealing with death, and God is dealing with the punishment of these things, and His punishment is death. And you might be tempted to say... I'm not sure if God is completely all for life. Give it the whole time through and and see if by the end of the study you're not convinced that God is a God who brings life. Father, we believe in this. And Lord, we trust in your righteousness. We don't understand. There's so much that happens down here that we do not understand. So much injustice from our perspective. So much hurt. And Lord, we ask why, even if we don't believe you caused some of these things, we ask why would you allow these things? But Father, we have such a limited perspective, a temporal perspective. We know on the other side of heaven that you have an eternal perspective, and that's the one we want. Father, I know from scriptures we will one day say, Righteous and true are all your judgments, Lord. And so I pray, Father, that for the things we don't understand now, that we will understand then, you will give us faith in your righteousness and trust that you are right and that your word is true and that we can believe in you, Father. 
Tonight as we study, Lord, would you open our eyes to life and help us see your great desire for your people, not only Israel, but for us as well. Tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 1 tells us Moses continuing his oration to the people before they cross the Jordan into the promised land. Moses goes on and says, If a slain person is found lying in the open country in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess, and it is not known who struck him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. It shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd, which has not been worked and which has not pulled in a yoke, And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which has not been plowed or sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. And all the elders, verse 6, of that city, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer, whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, and the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. This is a vicarious punishment. This heifer now stands in the place of the murderer, who at this point is unknown. Someone's killed, the body is found, and the first thing they are to do is to take a measuring stick or a rope or something and measure to the nearest city and figure out which city is closest. Because that city, and listen to this, that city is responsible. They're culpable. Even if they're completely innocent, even if no one in that city had anything to do with the murder, the murdered body, then the murderer unknown, the city closest to it, is responsible. And so the Lord says, you bring a heifer out, you break its neck, you wash your hands over it for a, a symbol of expiation from this crime. A symbol of repentance, a substitutionary sacrifice. Interesting. And I say, well, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense. These people are all innocent. They didn't do anything wrong. Two things to note about this ordinance that are interesting. Number one, no one's innocent. The moment we speak the words, but that person is innocent, we are wrong. And it goes for every one of us, and it goes for everything ever done in the world. Not a single one of us are innocent. When we say, I don't understand why he got in a car accident. He was innocent. No, he wasn't. If you are alive today, you have committed sin worthy of death. Because sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We're not innocent. That's one of the most important things for us to get out of our minds. Because once we step out of that and recognize we aren't innocent, we recognize how much we need the Lord. So we're not innocent. No one in the town is innocent. Oh, they may be innocent of that murder, but they are not innocent as people. I've been talking about this book that I've been reading, reading lately, Confessions of a Reformation Reverend, <laughs> written by Mark Driscoll of the uh, Mars Hill Church down in Seattle. And he says the following. I want you to listen to this for a second. This quote, it's, it's interesting. He said, I'm particularly concerned with some growing trends among some people. 
Number one, the rejection of Jesus' death on the cross as a penal substitute for our sins. Number two, resistance to openly denouncing homosexual acts as sinful. Number three, the questioning of an eternal torment in hell, which is a denial that holds up only until, in an ironic bummer, you die and find yourself there. The rejection of God's sovereignty, number four, over and the knowledge of the future, as if God were a junior college professor who knows only bits and pieces of trivia. His sarcasm is great in this book. He says the rejection, number five, of biblically defined gender roles thereby contributing to the mantropy epidemic among young, young guys now fretting over the best kind of loofah for their skin type. <laughs> Number six, he says, the rejection of biblical names for God, such as Father, which is essentially apologizing before the unbelieving world for the prayer life of the flamboyantly heterosexual Jesus who dared to utter the horrendous politically incorrect Our Father who is in heaven without ever having the decency to apologize for being a misogynist, patriarchal meanie. This is ultimately all the result of a diminished respect for the perfection, authority, and clarity of Scripture. And he's absolutely right. On all counts. Ultimately, the denial of all these biblical truths, indeed of the Bible itself, is the denial of our very real sin nature and our need for forgiveness. That's why people shun these things. That's why we would say, oh, you know what? Homosexuality is okay. Because if that's okay, guess what? So am I. If this sin is alright, then maybe my sin is okay. And so we start to water down and make it easy and, and, and palatable and acceptable. That, by the way, is psychology's answer to sin in the world. That's psychology's answer to guilt. Just let it go. If nothing is wrong, if it's just, you know actions and behaviors and there's no real wrong or, or right here then you can just let go of the guilt and be free of it but it doesn't go away that easily for us guilt sticks we need forgiveness for it something God sought to teach us early on is no one is innocent and it seems to me that if we could accept that in each other and in ourselves especially we would be a whole lot more able to forgive other people if I can look in the mirror and recognize my lack of innocence, I can also look at my friends, family, and people around me and forgive. Because I am no better than anybody else. We're all level at the foot of the cross. So no one is innocent. That's the first thing to recognize out of this is this town is said they need to come out and they need to, to act this act of, of expiation. But the second thing is that maturity accepts responsibility. Show me a mature Christian and I will show you someone who is willing to accept responsibility not only for their own actions but for the actions of others. Show me a mature pastor or a mature elder or a mature church leader somewhere and I will tell you that the mark there is they are willing to be responsible for the fellowship, for the congregation where they serve. Show me the mature Christian who sits in that fellowship, who is, who is on their knees praying, heartbroken, for the people all around them because they're willing to accept responsibility. Show me Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. In one of the most powerful acts of repentance in the Bible, this almost perfect man, in fact, if you read through the book of Daniel, I don't know if you realize this, but Daniel is the only person in the Bible with the exception of Jesus himself who we don't read any sin. We can make some implications, if you're into that. 
But we don't see Daniel sin, not a single time. I, I know he did. He was human. But this, this man of God, this man who loved the Lord with all of his heart, kneels down in Daniel chapter 9 and he begins to pray for all of Israel. And he begins to repent and to weep for his people, Israel, because he recognizes their sin. But he's not just praying for them, he's praying for us. He's praying for us. He says, Lord, forgive us our sins. And I'm reading that going, Daniel? (laughs) What do you have to be sorry for, man? He was just a kid when he was taken out of Judah anyway into Babylonian captivity. What did he really have to be sorry for? And yet he took responsibility. It is a distasteful truth in a society where the favorite pastime is passing the buck. Where that's what we're taught. It's got to be someone else's fault. It's always someone else's fault. I just love watching the Republicans and the Democrats go at it. Without speaking what my own political orientation might be, this whole Mark Foley scandal is absolutely... It it, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. If you've been watching the news and you know that Republican Representative Mark Foley has an email scandal sending inappropriate emails to some page, page boys who are you know 15 and 16 years old. And it's all over Washington. And boy, at this point, the Democrats are just pointing the finger, pointing the finger. Just like, by the way, the Republicans have in the past. As if to say, our party is the innocent party. We're the sinless ones. Guess what? Whether you're a Republican or Democrat, neither one's going to get you into heaven. Only faith in Jesus Christ is going to save us. And so as I watch this going back and forth, I think, you know, who's going to stand up and go, I'm responsible. I'm responsible for my party. I'm responsible for the behavior of people around me. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm sorry that this happened. Who in the church does that? I'm responsible for my brothers and sisters. I'm sorry that he or she wronged you in that way. I wasn't even there, but I'm sorry. I'm going to make that right. I will be responsible. Notice it's the elders who are called out to perform the expiation of this crime because maturity gang, it shoulders the blame. A mature believer in Jesus Christ provides covering for other believers, is willing to take the responsibility. And so in this case, the elders come out and they accept responsibility for the crime. And we see this in Hebrews 5.14. The Hebrew writer says, Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The mature are practicing these things. And so the mature person accepts responsibility. And I'll ask you this this evening, who among us will take responsibility for the lives of others? Who will say, I'm going to be responsible for my friends. I will take responsibility for my family. And I will seek to do what's right. Verse 10 going on tells us, when you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them away captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman. And have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself. Then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head, and trim her nails, and she shall also remove the clothes of her captivity, and shall remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a full month, and after that you may go into her, and be her husband, and she shall be your wife." It shall be if you're not pleased with her. Then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. This is a bizarre little ordinance. God thinks of everything. He thinks about the guy who's going to go into battle, see a beautiful woman, take her captive and go, 
I want some time with this. I want to spend some time with her. I'm taking her into my house. Actually, what God is thinking about is what normally went on in battle in those days. That when you went into a a neighboring city or a country or a nation and fought, part of the spoils of war was the women. And the average typical thing expected of the soldier was to rape and pillage. It's what you get. It's part of the victory. Go in, wipe out the men and take the women. (laughs) You know, it reminds me... No, I'm not going to go there. I was going to say it reminds me of a scene from uh, Three Amigos, but it's really not that important. Just one, one of the. Uh, I'll tell you this much because now you're wondering what scene is that? It's, it's the scene where the, the two bad guys are talking, and 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 the kind of the the lower guy to the to the bad guy goes, "Hey, when you when you see the horse, you take the horse, and when you see the city, you take the city, and when you see the woman." You take the woman. You know, that was the attitude. I see this in my mind, and I'm sorry we went there at all. But, but this, is, this was the attitude of soldiering in the day. When you see the woman, you take the woman. And God says, no, 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 no. We're not doing it that way anymore. If you see a woman, I'm going to give you some standards. And you really, you really want her. You really want to love her. The deal is, you've got to marry her, buddy. But before you do, he sets up some interesting things. And by the way, this is not Canaanite women he's talking about. Because remember, they go into the land and God said to wipe out the entire land. This is going to be later when they fight against other nations outside of Israel that come against Israel or that they go against. And so this ordinance is laid down. And God says there must be a month of mourning. I want the woman to come into your house. She changes her clothes. She shaves her head. So now she's completely bald, and she trims her nails. Why? Three possibilities here. Number one, it removed the indication of slavery through a rite of purification. To shave the head and trim the nails was a purifying thing. It would make this woman no longer a slave in the house, but would give her a month that would allow her to become pure and then become a wife of an Israelite and thereby be accepted into the community. Isn't that amazing that God would do this? He's not just concerned about Israel, gang. He is concerned about humanity. And so he he provides for this, this indication of slavery being removed through the rite of purification. But it also removed the immediate beauty of the foreign woman. You want her that bad? Shave her head and tell me what you think. (laughs) Look at her now, oh soldier. Might make you think twice. You might go, wow, without that head of hair, I don't think so. Hey, we'll just send her on her way. Give her some money. I don't, you know, this is not good. We don't need her around. It also replaced the impetuosity of the soldier with compassion because he had to take her into his house and listen to her mourn for a month. And he had to recognize that the woman he took lost her parents because his army fought that war. Pretty powerful stuff. But God says if things don't work out, let her go. She's absolutely free. Now there is a modern application for us regarding marriage and relationships today. And that's very simply this. In the heat of battle, would you slow down? (laughs) Slow down. In the heat of battle... You know, we we base so much on our feelings and things can feel so right and feel so good and just feel so perfect. And the woman can be alluring on a date, especially if she's had a a shower, a shampoo, and a shine. You know, she's looking good. She's smelling good. 
But what about when she's got a sinus infection? Now that's a totally different thing. You know? Huh? Or kidney stones. Or kidney stones. <laughs> Where you back up and go, whoa. <laughs> Give her room. What about when he is not trying so hard to impress? Bottom line, gang, is feelings are never a solid foundation for a marriage or for a relationship. Now, many of you are married. Some of you are not. And those of you who are not, please listen to me. Don't base a marriage on feelings, a relationship on, oh, I just get tickles. It just feels so right when I'm with her, when I'm with him, because it's such a mistake. The Bible says love is patient. Love is patient. God did the greatest thing that he possibly could have done for Cheryl and I when we first met. We met, we were friends for a while, we started dating, and two weeks after we started dating, God took me out of state for my freshman year of college. And we spent a year, and this was before email, so we couldn't even do that. This was phone calls once a week, or twice, or sometimes five, but calling back and forth, (laughs) writing letters, and no physical contact. And it was wonderful. It was painful at the time. But it was wonderful because God slowed the whole thing down. Love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13.4 tells us. In verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things like Jacob waiting for Rachel. Remember Jacob? Remember what he did? He, he worked seven years for a wife. All right, seven years, we're going to get Rachel. And at the end of seven years, he gets married, and on the wedding night, goes into her, and then has you know, the wedding night thing, which we all know what they do. And then the next morning, wakes up, rolls over, and it's Leah! It's not Rachel! It's weak-eyed Leah! She's not looking very good! Because now, okay, it's the next morning, so the shower shine, the thing, that's not even working. <laughs> What happened here? And so you know what he did? You know the story. He worked seven more years. Why? The Bible tells us in Genesis 29-20 that Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. God would say you love someone? Slow down. Take your time. I think there's great application there for us. Well, going on back in Deuteronomy 21 verse 15... Still speaking of relationship with a man here, it says, and a woman, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, boy, this is Rachel and Leah all over, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons, he cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, and to him belongs the right of the firstborn. The Bible, by the way, and let me just point this out, never puts polygamy in a, in a positive light. Never. Never says one positive thing, one good thing about polygamy. It addresses polygamy. Polygamy happens. But it is never held up as okay, as a godly standard. In fact, from the very beginning, Jesus says, you know the drill. It was one man for one woman for one life. That's what God ordained. And he goes on to say, it was the hardness of your hearts that messed up this whole thing. Polygamy is not positive. What the Bible does do is that it acknowledges what man was up to. And here the Lord is simply meeting man where he was. 
He would eventually bring Israel, wean the people off of polygamy. But in this case, because they were polygamous and because mankind was polygamous, God dealt with where they were, met them where they were at, and gave them some prescription for behavior that would protect the children, specifically the firstborn. So he says, you can't have two wives, love one and not love the other one, and elevate the sons of the one you love. You elevate the firstborn, even if he is of the unloved wife. Great for them, great for them. What does that mean for us now? Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, and that's what happens in an affair. That's what happens in an affair situation. Man's married, he's got his wife, things are good. Well, maybe not so good. And then he starts looking over here, and she's looking pretty good. And the better she looks, the less good honey looks at home. You cannot have two wives. You can't serve two masters. You can't do it. You're going to love one more. And the more you love the one, the more you're going to hate the other one. And when this happened in Israel, the Lord declared, you do not show favoritism to the son of the loved wife. Now, I want to make a note of this because I think there's an application today, not to polygamy, but to divorce. I think in the situation of a divorce, too often, a tragic thing is spoken by children of divorce, and that is, Daddy has a new family now. And I don't even know all of the life situation of, of each of you here. I, I don't need to know. But I do want to say this. If you have a divorce in your background, don't forget your responsibility to your firstborn. Do not forget the children of your first marriage because they matter to the Lord as much as the children of the second marriage. Am I saying divorce is okay? No, the Bible doesn't say that either. But God does recognize our sinful nature. He recognizes that we fail. And he would, that we would at least, in that failure, care for those who would be most hurt by it, which tends to be the kids. Hear your father's heart in these things, the things that even that we've looked at so far. He provides covering for a community where murder took place. He covers the community. He provides care for the captive woman from an enemy state. And in this last little section here we looked at, he provides compassion for the child of an unloved wife. Does this sound like a God who is a warmonger and a killer? Or does it sound like a father who really is trying to rope his children in and give them a way to live life? This is the book of love, the book of Deuteronomy. We said early on, that is the theme of this book, love. God loves and cares for his people. Verse 18 going on, it says, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother. (laughs) This is a great one. And when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of this city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all of the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. And I'll never forget when my dad told me about this old law. (laughs) I was in a situation where I was in a little bit of trouble, a little bit of rebellion going on. And my dad said, you know what they used to do in Israel? You know what the Bible teaches about a rebellious son in Israel? Well, what? What? I said haughtily. They take him out and they stone him. That really had an impact on me. I was like three at the time. I was a little 
little bit older now, but I was still, I was elementary age, and it just freaked me out. I remember spending nights thinking about, would my mom and dad stone me just because I lied about the cookie jar? I mean, is, that, is this a possibility here? Could I be stoned for that? And I thought, even back then, that's harsh. That is really harsh. The issue, by the way, isn't that the son was partying too hard. The issue was rebellion. God views rebellion extremely seriously. Because rebellion, gang, is at the heart of sin. Because we are rebellious, we sin. And it's that rebellious heart that God wants to nip in the bud, to deal with immediately, early on. Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Conversely, rebel against your mother and father, and you're going to end up stoned. Not a good thing. And it ties directly to where we are today. Paul specifically mentions disobedience to parents as a sign of the end times. He says in 2 Timothy 3.1, Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. And he adds a few more things to the list. So serious is God in this that not only is it dealt with in the Old Testament, it's dealt with in the New Testament, disobedience to parents, rebellion, is sin in the eyes of our Father. Again, I was frightened about this thing when my dad mentioned it to me and and then one day I had a little revelation about a week later I went back to my dad and said hey wait a minute we're not under that law anymore right? (laughs) Right? Yeah, we're not. Why would God do this? Why would God who loves life who is about life prescribe death for a rebellious child? Why would he do that? Three possibilities here. There's probably more. Parental motivation. If you knew that you eventually would have to stone a child that was rebellious, how would it affect the way you discipline the child as they grow up? You would start early on as a parent never wanting that to happen. No parent wants to deal harshly with their child. No parent does. And so God says, well, this would be the end result. So therefore, here's a little motivation for you. Let me motivate you to raise up your child in the way he should go, Proverbs 22.6, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Raise your kids right. Set yourself to the task. Secondly, it's personal evaluation. Not just parental motivation, but it's personal evaluation. And this affects, by the way, those of you who, who maybe have older kids or don't, or don't have kids at all. Personal evaluation. Notice what happens. The parents bring the son out to the elders and all the men of the city are responsible to stone him. Not mom and dad. If this is followed through to the nth degree, the son would be placed out, the rebellious child, and the men of the city would surround that son and stone him to death. Now, in that culture, in that day, very different than today, the men of the city, the families, everyone would have been pretty tightly connected. As a matter of fact, they were all the same tribe. A city within a tribe. Everyone would have known everyone else. You would, if you were one of those people, be stoning the son of a friend, and you would know that son personally. And so it kind of makes you think as you're watching families of friends that, that you know watching them struggle. How are you helping out in that situation? Is there something you can do to help the parents out, to help the child out? Can, can you become involved in such a way that the ultimate punishment of the rebellion 
would be set aside. The question is, did I do what I could to help that family? In our selfish culture, we're so focused on ourselves that oftentimes we see families falling right and left all around us, but what have we done? Have we stepped in? Have we even interceded in prayer? Have we been willing to be part of the solution? Personal evaluation. And then finally, godly proclamation. Rebellion is not to be tolerated. Period. God is anti-rebellion. We say in our culture, boys will be boys. Oh, it's just teenage angst. And God would say you do what you need to do to parent them right. Early on. Discipline. Parenting is serious business. Discipline. I'm not talking about beatings. I'm talking about discipline and love. And discipline is a biblical concept and it's a good concept. Now a quick note to parents who fear that they failed. Some of you look at your own children, grown children now, and, and you say, well, what have I done? Or what's happened? Or I, did I, I guess I failed them because they're not walking with the Lord or they're not living a life that, that is honoring to God. I failed them. And to you, I would say, God is the perfect Father. Did He fail? Did He fail because we rebelled? His first two children that He placed in the garden rebelled against Him and got kicked out. So before you beat yourself up too much, recognize that rebellion is in the human heart. And even for all you may have tried to do, or even all you didn't know to do as a parent when the kids were growing up, they still have the choice. And they still have the sin nature, same sin nature that you have and I have. Jesus chose Judas. Did he fail? Was that a big oops on the part of Jesus? Was he unable to discipline his disciples did he fail in the task of discipleship boy you would think walking with Jesus three years would do it wouldn't you I mean if I could have any wish that would be the one let me walk with Jesus let me eat with him every morning and walk with him through the day and listen to his teaching and sit around the campfire with him at night and ask him questions and be discipled by him let Jesus disciple me and then I'm going to be right on target I'm going to be perfect I'll be like him. Didn't work for Judas. Didn't work too well for Peter. It took a little more to get Peter over the the, the final hump of being a real disciple. In fact, all the disciples split when Jesus got in trouble. Did he fail? We all have a sin nature. Your children, those of you who have grown children, remember, you were given a little sinner at birth. (laughs) You were. Oh, they're cute and cuddly and they burp and roll over and you know make little sounds and then you think, how precious is that? But that little precious thing has a sin nature. Give it time. <laughs> that little precious thing is going to prove itself to you. Some children are just prone to it and more prone to rebellion. And so I would say a word of encouragement if you have grown children who are in this place, the word of encouragement is simply live now in such a way that they see Jesus in your life. It is not too late. You start living now for Jesus before them and proclaiming Jesus to them. On the other hand, we do all have a responsibility, especially as the child is in the home, to raise our kids with discipline. And you can look at it this way. If you discipline your kids early on, they won't get stoned later. (laughs) (sighs) All right. Now, if you believe this law still is a little bit too harsh, you're saying, God, lay down this law. A couple things to know. One is we don't have any record of Israel ever carrying this law out. We don't ever see them doing it. But the second thing to know is an interesting kind of parallel here. 
What would God do? How would God, in this situation, react to the rebellious son? And I would send you directly to Luke chapter 15 and encourage you to read the chapter. Because in Luke 15 we have the wonderful story of the prodigal son. Who is rebellious, a glutton, and a drunkard. Exactly what's described here. And yet when he comes home, what does father do? Grab the rocks! (laughs) No. He grabs the robe. Throw them hard! Don't miss! No, he says, kill the fatted calf. We're having a feast. Get the ring. Get the shoes for his feet. While the son is groveling on the ground, just hoping he can get a place as a servant in the household, God is is grabbing him and hugging him and saying, the father is. It's God in the picture. Saying, I love you. Welcome home. The only difference between the father and Jesus' story and God, and listen to this, the only difference is that were God to embrace the rebellious child coming home, it would kill them. Because the rebellious child coming home in their sin and the perfect father, a perfect father wrapping his perfect arms around a sinful child would kill the child. And so he had to come up with a method, a way of dealing with that. Watch this. Verse 22. tells us if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Why is that there? Right after this prescription for a stubborn, rebellious child that deserves to be taken out and stoned, right after that you have this law about someone who is hung on a tree being accursed. Why would it be right there? I'm convinced that it wasn't accidental. I don't think that Moses was just kind of shooting the breeze in his sermon as as I have been known to do at times. I don't think Moses was doing that. This is very specific. It is placed where it is. Why? Because Jesus hung on a tree and was accursed for us. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3. Because truly as prodigals, if we were to come home, we would be squeezed to death. In the loving embrace of our Father who is perfect, our sin would bring us to death in the arms of our Father if not for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus as He hung on that tree. As He took the place, the place that we deserve, as He wore our rebellion on His shoulders at the cross of Calvary. And that's all I'm going to say about it tonight because we're going to look at that in depth on Sunday morning. We're going to go to Galatians 3 and consider these things a little bit more. But moving on, chapter 22 is now filled with laws of responsibility to other people. Remember we said the mature person is the responsible one. So now it's about responsibilities to others. Verse 1. You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. And you shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. If your countryman is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it, and then you shall restore it to him. Thus you shall do with his donkey, the same you are to do with his his garment. And you shall do likewise with anything lost by your countryman, which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly help him to raise them up. Now in that uh, third verse there, it says you are not allowed to neglect them. The word them is just kind of added in by the translators. The word neglect, however, is interesting. It's the Hebrew word alam. And alam in the Hebrew literally means to hide yourself away. 
And what he is saying here, what Moses is prescribing for the people of Israel is you are not allowed to live and let live. You are not allowed to hide away in your home and ignore the needs of your neighbor. You're not allowed to do that. If you are aware of a need, you meet the need, you fill the need, you serve wherever you see there being a need. Maturity means responsibility. And as you grow in Christ and become a more mature person in Jesus, it will show, it has to show, in your life behavior. Because you're not just going to see needs and drive away. I I was sitting there, uh, went to pick up Corey from the bus stop today, and there was another kid at the bus stop. He's kind of looking around, waiting for his, his dad to show up. And Corey got into the car, and, and I wanted to get home. I had things to get done. And I barely had time to pick up my own son. I wanted to make him walk. And so I'm ready to get out of there quick. And this kid comes up to the window and, and knocks on the window. And I kid you not, everything inside of me wanted to, to hit the gas and get out of there. Because I didn't want to help the kid out. Isn't that awful? Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> I don't even know why I told you tonight. I'm going to go home and delete this off of the tape. I want, I seriously, I just wanted to get home and this kid's knocking on the window and for about a split second, I just wanted to pretend like I didn't hear him and just drive off. Uh, I turn and roll down the window. Yeah? Um, my dad's not here. Could I have a ride home? Yeah, get in the car. You know? And then of course we see his dad driving the other way so we had to turn around and go back. <laughs> Ridiculous. But Jesus says the following. He says in Matthew seven twelve. he says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. And that's why Moses is saying these things right here. You don't ignore the need of a neighbor. You care for the neighbor because the two greatest laws are to love God, Jesus says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you keep those two things, you keep the law and the prophets. Said that in Matthew twenty three thirty nine. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So if you will, instead of focusing yourself, Israel, on six hundred and thirteen laws, you focus yourself on two: love God with all your heart, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And in so doing, the law will take care of itself. Mostly, we're still sinners. We're going to mess it up. We'll get there, my friends. It is a sin to neglect, not neglect, to hide away, to conceal ourselves, to live and let live. James in James 4.17 said to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. I was that close to sinning this afternoon. (laughs) But I didn't. I think I did in here a little bit. Verse 5. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And the whole thing is called metrosexual. The whole metrosexual feminine look among guys today, gang, especially among young guys, it was an abomination then. It is an abomination now. That has not changed. It still is disgusting to the Lord God. That hasn't changed. I don't know why we would think it has. You might say, yeah, but Rick, come on. We're not under law. And I say again, if it defended God, then I guarantee you it offends God now. Whether we think we can you know, just rush off into grace and ignore that or not, it's still offensive to the Lord. Verse 6 going on says, If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. 
You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and you may prolong your days. What is that doing in there? <laughs> now I do think Moses was probably preaching. Everybody's gathered around and a bird went flying by and he went, Oh yeah, hear about them too. Take care of the birdies. Now here, here's the point, gang. He is talking about caring for life. And we see an example here and it's very interesting to me. What he's saying is let life continue to provide life. In other words, you're not just responsible for your neighbors, but you're responsible for the world around you as well. Are you asking if I'm a tree hugger? That's not what I'm saying. But we have an environmental responsibility to this world. God gave it to us. He told us to be stewards of it. To take care of it. And this is just one example, and it's an interesting one. If you're going to take the eggs, let the mother go. So I can't have fried chicken and deviled eggs. For <laughs> well, think about it. Deviled eggs. <laughs> your answer right there the underlying principle again let life continue take from the environment take what's necessary what you need but let life continue the context indicates this ongoing responsibility that Moses is talking about for life verse 8 when you build a new house you shall make a parapet for your roof that would be like a, a little fence all the way around the top of your roof so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it now, if these are seem, seeming random, and I'm getting a few looks from you, like, what? <laughs> Moses is talking about life. This whole thing is about life. And saying, you're going to build a roof. And in Israel, their roofs were flat. Mostly, they would use them as patios. They'd go up on the roof. Remember, Peter was up on the roof when he was praying in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10. He's up there praying, and, and he has the dream. This was typical in Israel in the day. So God says, hey, that's great. You're going to have patios on your roof. Wonderful. Make a fence around the top so when you have people up there they're not going to accidentally fall off and kill themselves why Lord? because life matters because we're talking about life and here's an example of something you can do to care about life make it safe be concerned for the life of others verse 9 you shall not sow your vineyard now you think, thought that was random here we go watch this you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed or all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. Why? You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Why do oxen and donkeys not get along? You shall not wear a material mixture of wool and linen together. And if that's not random enough, verse 12, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. Everybody got those laws down? What in the world are you talking about here, Moses? Be careful here. Don't immediately cry random and move on. We have to stop and ask. In situations like this, why all of a sudden does Moses, he's talking about life and he's talking about things that concern life and we can at least draw some connection there, but all of a sudden he starts talking about mixing things. Don't mix your seed or your animals or your material. What in the world does that have to do with And then... Then he says, make tassels on the four corners of your garments with which to cover yourself. Why? Look back in your Bibles at Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. Long about verse 37. Numbers 15.37 The Lord also spoke to Moses saying Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments 
throughout their generations and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot so that you may remember to do all my commandments and listen to this and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. What's the point? Gang, the whole idea here back in Deuteronomy 22 is holiness. There is a connection, a powerful connection between life and holiness. And Moses now is sliding into a discussion of holiness. That's why all of a sudden he's talking about mixing things together. Because throughout the scripture, the idea of mixing things is is a rebellious act. It's a picture of unholiness. Because holiness simply means to be set apart. To be uniquely by itself. Not to be mixed together. The idea of the tassels were to remind the people of their call to holiness, to be holy like God was holy. Same with the idea of the mixtures that shows up again and again as a picture or symbol of unholiness. The word holiness, we studied this in depth when we were in, in the book of Leviticus because that is the key word of that book, holiness. But the word holiness, listen, this is used 47 times in the book of Exodus. Kadosh is the word in the Hebrew. It ramps up to 91 times in the book of Leviticus, another 35 times in Numbers, and 12 more times in Deuteronomy. And so you get a total Torah count of 185 times that God says, Be holy. That God uses the word holiness for the people of Israel. In these first five books, 185 calls to holiness, and there's another eight times throughout the whole Bible that the Lord calls out specifically, Be holy, because I am holy. Holiness. Peter said it in 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So it's not just an Old Testament thing. It is a New Testament call as well. Be holy. Holiness is to be set apart, to be unmixed to the Lord. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? And what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, and if you mix things up, you will end up mixed up. If we try to mix together things that don't go together, it just makes a mess of things. I'll give you a great example. Cheryl and I sat down in Red Robins. This was actually a few years ago, but I'll never forget this. And we ordered mud pie. We had just gone out for dessert. We didn't have dinner or anything else. We sat down and Red Robin mud pie. Sounded great to us. I had my tea, Cheryl had a coffee. We had the mud pie to set it down in front of us. <laughs> it looked good, the mud pie sitting there in the caramel sauce. And we dug into that mud pie and one bite... You know, swirled around in the caramel sauce, put it in my mouth, and realized that somebody in the kitchen had made a, a, a terrible mistake. The caramel sauce was Italian dressing. <laughs> Do not mix together mud pie and Italian dressing. Don't mix these things. They don't go well to two tastes that do not go well together. And we see an example of the same kind of idea, though, in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2, 12 through 17, talking to the church at Pergamum. Pergamum means objectionable marriage. 
And is a prophetic statement in those verses of the mixing of the church and the state. Don't mix those things together. Bad idea. Revelation 3, 14 through 22 tells us about another church in another city, Laodicea. Who you might know of as the lukewarm church. What is lukewarm? It's the mixing of hot and cold. Don't mix them together. Don't mix things. If we attempt to mix the holy and the worldly, we will end up mixed up. But listen, he goes on now, and holiness is prescribed, is shown as a tangible, measurable thing. And holiness especially emerges in the context of our relationships. Verse 13, If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her, and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her, and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. The girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. And behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin. But this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. What garment? I'll explain in a minute. Maybe I won't. So the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver. By the way, the typical marriage dowry price was 50 shekels of silver. So now this guy's being charged double what he paid for the bride in the first place. Charge him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father because he has publicly defamed a virgin of Israel, and she shall remain his wife, and he cannot divorce her all his days. However, if this charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death, because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house, thus she shall purge the evil from among you. Virgin proof. Even to this day, in certain cities, even in our country, in certain ethnic neighborhoods, like Chicago or New York, parents will hang out the bridal bedsheets as a proof the next morning of their daughter's virginity. They will hang out the bedsheets with blood on them to show the neighborhood around that the daughter was a virgin. Now you might say, what? <laughs> That's awful. What a terrible thought. That would make a person think twice about premarital sex, wouldn't it? If you knew that that wedding night sheet was going to be hung out your window for the whole neighborhood to see, would you think twice, boy, maybe I want to save myself so that people see the proof that I... I mean, it sounds ghastly and grotesque, but it's exactly what they did in Israel. The parents would keep the sheet from the wedding night as proof that the daughter was a virgin. And then if the husband, for whatever reason, decided to try and put her out and say, oh, she wasn't a virgin, they would have the proof right there. This is all about, listen, incentive to purity. God is laying down this law, not to be gross or strange or weird. He's giving them a law. Remember, this is a, a childish people that are growing up, beginning to learn what holiness was really all about, who God is really about. What his character is like. And so he's trying to bring them out of that childishness and into a relationship and he gives them prescriptions for purity. And this is one of them. You want to make sure the daughter is pure. And here's a way to prove it. And purity is ultimately holiness in the eyes of the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, Flee immorality. 
It's an unfortunate translation because the word immorality is pornea. It's where we get pornography. And it's literally sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral man, pornea is used again there, sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, you have been, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body. Virgin proof. Purity in a relationship is a measurable, tangible picture of holiness. You can measure holiness in a person's life. Verse 22 going on says, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her, now this is interesting, listen, in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. So if it happens in the city and she doesn't cry out, she dies too. If it happens in the country where no one can hear you scream, then only the man is put to death for this. You shall do nothing to the girl. Verse 26, there's no, no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. And when he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father... Now this is a girl who's not engaged, so a single girl. Give the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, the marriage price, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her and he cannot divorce her all his days. So Moses says, if you're a guy and you grab a single girl and you force her or you lay with her and she lays with you, guess what? There's a price to pay. You're marrying her. She's yours from here on out. So think twice. Think twice about what you're doing. And then verse 30 a man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt. In all of these areas of sexual behavior, from fornication to adultery to rape to incest, the responsibility of God's children is to holiness, is to purity. That's what he's calling Israel to. He's training them up, showing them what holiness is all about. Now, you might say, okay, wait a minute. If an Israelite really believed in the Lord, I mean, really, truly believe in the Lord with all their heart, but they have a human moral failing like all of us are prone to? Do they still die? And the answer would be yes. But a couple of things to put into perspective here. Perspective number one, the worst thing that can happen to a person is not death. We think it is. God doesn't. In a great verse, one of my favorites, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, those, he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. God's concern is not my temporary comfort. His concern is my eternal condition. Always has been. Now, here's an interesting thought. 
for God to prescribe that a person who has committed adultery die for it was an act of grace before Jesus came. Before Jesus came. It doesn't mean that the person who died for the adultery was sent directly to hell. It just meant that they had the the ultimate life punishment. But where would they go from there? They would go before the Father. They would go into actually the place of waiting until grace could appear by Jesus on the cross. And then, from a godly perspective, they could find salvation. I'm talking about someone in Israel who absolutely believed, who loved the Lord, who had a faith relationship with God, who like Abraham, their faith is credited to them as righteousness until Jesus died on the cross to wash away the sins of their life. You could almost say, I know it sounds a little out there, but you could almost say it would be better for that person to die than to go on sinning, ultimately to completely lose a relationship with God at all. If they are to die, then they die for that sin without being lost for eternity. And so we have a a little different perspective, I think, than the Lord, but He would say death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. We might say, well, yeah, but if they die in adultery, well, let me ask you this, is adultery one of the unforgivable sins? I only read one unforgivable sin in the Bible, and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Which means if you committed adultery in your life, you can't be forgiven. It means if you have a divorce in your past, there is forgiveness. We talked about this in our elders meeting last night, and I firmly, for one, I do not believe that a person who is divorced now lives in a state of sin because of that divorce. God hates divorce. But it's a sin like anything else that is forgivable. Every single thing we do, praise God for Jesus on the cross, and we come after the cross, the cross washing away our sin from, from behind us, Praise the Lord that we have that grace. But every sin we commit is a forgivable offense in Jesus with the exception of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit which I believe is not forgivable because once you blaspheme the Holy Spirit you're, you're casting out the very one who forgives you. There's another question though that's kind of interesting here and it's why didn't the Lord follow His own laws? Why didn't God follow this law? In John chapter 8, Jesus was presented with a woman caught in adultery. And based on Levitical law, based on Deuteronomic law, she should have been stoned to death right there. And that's what the Pharisees wanted. What do we do with her? We caught her in the act of adultery. So, what do you say, Jesus? And they had him. Or so they thought. Because if he said stone him, they knew that all the people who followed after him because he was such a merciful guy would turn away. But if he said, don't stone him, they'd have him because he violates the law. And what does Jesus say? Okay, go ahead, stoner. Whichever one of you is without sin, pick up the first rock. Take your best shot. And one by one, they walked away. She didn't die. She should have died. She deserved to die. And we feel really bad for her because she was caught in the act of adultery. But don't forget the fact that she was caught in the act of adultery. She did make the choice to sin. She was caught sinning. And Jesus had every right, by law, to see her stone. But he didn't do it. He, quote-unquote, violated his own law. Why? He said to her later, go your way and sin no more. We see the same thing 
with David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. David didn't die for committing adultery. Bathsheba didn't die. And by the way, she wasn't the innocent accomplice. She didn't cry out in the city. She was there too. They both, based on this law, should have been stoned to death. But they weren't. God didn't even call for the death of David. He could have, he should have, based on his own law. Why didn't he? David tells us. Psalm 51.16, he says, in that passionate psalm of repentance, he says, You did not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And here's the second perspective to know. The heart of the issue here is not punishment, it's redemption. The heart of the Father is never about punishment. It is only and always about redemption. The whole idea of these punishments in the law was to make people realize how serious sin was. That they might be people who repent. The reason David didn't die is he repented. He had a broken heart. The reason the woman who was thrown before Jesus was not stoned but was forgiven by Jesus was she was contrite. She was broken before him. And all he had to say was three little words, sin no more. What a powerful thing that would have stayed with her the rest of her life. That moment when she came face to face with God Almighty in the flesh should have been killed, but was embraced with redemption. Sin no more. The heart of the issue is not punishment, it's redemption. Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law, this whole law we're looking at, the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ who makes me holy. Now, we're not going to do chapter 23, but let me just read a couple of verses and we'll finish tonight. Verse 1 of chapter 23 says, No one who is emasculated or has had his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Shall we pray? (laughs) I just want to leave you with a verse to consider through the week. Meditate on... What is going on here with this verse? Listen, there's a principle here that is precious and we need not miss it. God expects the assembly to be capable of reproduction. And that applies so powerfully. It's it's why, by the way, the bridge is going to two services on Sunday. Because God expects the assembled people to be capable of reproduction. To be capable of bringing more in. To see lives changed and to see his body, his fellowship, his people grow. Lyle Schaller, church growth expert, says the following. The two most comfortable sizes of churches in America today are, number one, 45 people or less. And number two, 150 people or less. Do you know how many churches we would need in the Anacortes Oak Harbor area to reach everybody with that standard? If every church just had 150 people, now I didn't do the math, but you can figure it out yourself. 25,000 people in Oak Harbor, about 15 in Anacortes, so put it together, 40,000 people. 40,000 divided by 150, what is that? Mathematicians? Anyone? A lot of churches. Okay? It's a lot of churches. Tons of churches everywhere. And, and you know it's funny because we oftentimes in smaller churches and we are in a smaller church because we you know started with 20 people and, and it's kind of growing as, as God sees fit but we get comfortable I'll tell you what I was comfortable in that living room three years ago it was great we had like 25-30 people we ate together 
We had communion every Wednesday together and we worshipped and we studied the Bible and it was homey and close and I knew everyone in the room. And even as pastor of this church, Sunday morning I stood up here and I looked around and I was like, I don't know half the people here. God bless you, go and be filled. I don't even know who you are. And for me personally, it's a little uncomfortable. But God's not real concerned about my temporary com- comfort. He's concerned about our, our <laughs> I can't even say it. He's concerned about our eternal condition. Right now, my eternal condition is saved. How about the 25,000 people who live in Oak Harbor, the 15,000 in Anacortes? How about the eternal condition of the vast majority of people up here who don't go to church, who don't know Jesus, who have no relationship with God whatsoever? Well, I sit in my comfortable church of 45 or 150, and by the way, the average church in America today is approximately 89 people. We're doing something wrong if that's the case. The church should be growing because the Word of God is alive and it's active. And the worship of God is life-changing and altering, as you know, as I know. Man, when we worship God, it does something in us. It's wonderful. And the message of God is hope in a hopeless world. We should see churches burgeoning with people if the simple truth of the gospel is out there. If we would stop working for ourselves and start listening to the Holy Spirit, allowing Him to lead, we should be people who reproduce. Because reproduction means, again, life. Verse 2 says, No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. What does this mean? It means God has no illegitimate children. He doesn't have illegitimate children. God doesn't have any stepdaughters or stepsons. God doesn't have foster children. Because every child of God is a child of God. Everyone born again of the Holy Spirit is a son or a daughter of God. He doesn't have steps and fosters and illegitimate. John tells us in John 1.10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. And He came to His own, that would be the Jewish people, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, called out, set apart, adopted, sons and daughters, made holy by the blood of Jesus. And that's an awesome thought. God doesn't have illegitimate children. There's not a one of us in Jesus Christ who are illegitimately there. Paul said, I was close. He said, I was one untimely born. Literally, Paul says, I was like an aborted fetus who somehow was given life. But Paul also says, we have the adoption as sons. We're adopted into the family. And none of us are illegitimate. Sometimes you might feel that way. You might look at your life and and, and the sin and the struggle and the hurt and the heartache and you might say, God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. And you might start to hear this enemy whisper, illegitimate, illegitimate, you're not a legitimate child of God. And the Lord would say, oh, contraire. You are my sons, you're my daughters, you are legitimate by the blood of Jesus. Now skip down to verse 14, we'll end on that verse. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you therefore your camp must be what? holy 
And you must not, he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. And my friends, the greatest reason to strive for holiness in our lives is because God is present. Because he's in the camp. He doesn't abide a lack of holiness. He wants us to be holy. He has made us holy by Jesus. But he wants us to live lives that are holy as well. And so, Father, we pray for holiness tonight. Father, holiness is not this, you know, Lord, it's not this religious thing. It's not how tight we can tie a tie or how good we can look in a suit or for the ladies in a, in a nice long dress. Father, holiness, holiness is happiness and it's life. And I pray that we would be alive in purity and alive in holiness and alive in the righteousness, Father, that you have put on us, that you've imputed onto our lives because of Jesus. And we can walk with our heads held high because of what you have done. And we can pursue holiness, Father, because we know that you are present in the camp. As you tried to teach the Israelites about holiness, I pray, Father, you will teach us to live and walk in these truths. By the grace of Jesus Christ, we pray tonight. Amen.